This is With Intrepid Heart Sermons, sermons by Rev. Adam Moline of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Our text today is the epistle lesson, especially these words from St. Paul. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Dear friends in Christ, God made Abraham a promise. Promise without strings attached. A promise about something that he would do. That God would bless Abraham. That he would have offspring. Offspring that would number as the stars number in the heavens. Offspring who would inherit the land of Canaan, have it given to them as a gift. God even goes into promise detail about what he says. He says the offspring will spend 400 years toiling. They will be slaves in a foreign land. They'll plunder that foreign land and become rich before they inherit the land of Canaan. And Later on, God adds to the promise and says that in his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God made that promise to Abraham, the promise of a Savior, the same promise God gave to Adam, to Noah, and that God would give to countless others who come after. A promise, free and clear, God will do this. The trouble with promises, though, is this. Sometimes they take time to fulfill. Especially God's promises. And we sinners are impatient. God doesn't operate in the time frames of man. Sometimes God doesn't even act within the lifetime of man. God operates... As God, the eternal God, sees fit. And that meant that the promise God gave to Abraham would take some time. Abraham believed the promise, that faith in the promise was counted to him as righteousness. Yes, this is true. But over the years, Abraham wondered When? When might it be fulfilled? As the years went by, Abraham wondered if that promise would be fulfilled. Now, it's understandable why Abraham wondered. He and his wife, Sarah, had never had any children, despite years of trying. And now Abraham, well, he was 86 years old. 
And his wife, Sarah, well, she was 76 years old. And it seemed that the opportunity, the window for having children had passed them by. I don't know how many 76-year-old women you know who are having children, but I know very few. None, in fact. And Abraham and Sarah knew that natural reality. God made a promise. Abraham and Sarah want the promise to be true, but in their lives it looks like it will never come true. And that's when they take matters into their own sinful hands. That's when they try to force God to fulfill his promise by their own actions, by their own works, giving way to their own sinful hearts. Here's the plan. Sarah will give her slave from Egypt, Hagar, to Abraham to have a baby with. And if a child is born from this extramarital affair, well then maybe God could fulfill his promise. Maybe then this child born of Hagar and Abraham would be the one to bring about the Savior. Maybe by helping God out a little bit. He does most of the work, but we aid him a little bit. Maybe then God's promise will be fulfilled. It seems that it might work. Hagar does become pregnant. But it's by the flesh, the will of man, not by the will of God. And for that reason, it doesn't work. God's promise isn't fulfilled by what Abraham and Sarah do. Instead, it makes a mess of their life. It creates friction between Abraham's wife, Sarah, and his concubine, Hagar. The two women start to bicker and fight with one another, to feel jealousy. It gets so bad, Hagar tries to run away, being stopped by God and sent back to fulfill her duty. God's promise isn't fulfilled by the sinful actions of human beings. It's fulfilled by God's will, at God's good timing, by God's good pleasure. It's fulfilled later, 14 years later, when Sarah, then around 90, conceives and gives birth to Isaac. And it's through Isaac the child of promise 
God fulfills his word. If you want to read about all of that sinful mess, go home and read Genesis chapters 15 through 18, and even a little more than that. Do so because that's the example St. Paul gives in our epistle lesson today. The Galatians, after Paul had preached the gospel to them, the good news of forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ, well, the Galatians take that message and twist it. They try to take the promises of God into their own hands to add to what God has done, to bring it about, to change it by what they were doing. They try to turn Christianity into a religion of works. Teaching that the only way you can be saved is if you do this one thing that God demands of you. And if you do it, then you've saved yourself. Well, Jesus did most of it, 99%, but if you do this one thing, that completes the puzzle. What was this one thing that the Galatians were all worried about? Well, circumcision. God had commanded Abraham to be circumcised and all of his descendants to be circumcised. And the Galatians were teaching that if you wanted to be saved, if you want to go to heaven, yes, Jesus forgives your sins, but you have to do something. have to be circumcised. If you read the book of Galatians, you can hear the scissors in the entire background of the book as Paul addresses this issue. On the surface, it seems to make sense. God commanded that the Israelites be circumcised. Every Jew was circumcised on the eighth day. Jesus himself was circumcised. We celebrate it every year on New Year's Day. And the Galatians picked up right where the scriptures left off. If you want to be Christian and enter heaven and be saved and live a truly Christian life, all you have to do is be circumcised. And if you don't, if you disobey that command of God, well then you're bound for hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Which sounds worse, being circumcised, or weeping and gnashing of teeth, world without end? With these thoughts and teachings, the Galatians were taking God's promises and their fulfillment into their own sinful hands, just like Abraham and Sarah did. What does that do for Jesus? 
If you have to do something, is Christ really your Savior? Or does his cross and passion fall short? If Jesus only ran 99% of the race, but you have to walk the last 1%, did he save you? Or did you save you? If Jesus did all that was necessary, but you still are required to be circumcised, are you saved by him or you? That's the question that now faces the Galatians. And that's the teaching that Paul rejects in that epistle. Paul says in our epistle lesson, we are not children of slavery, but children of the promise. We're not children who have to do things their master demands, like Hagar, like Ishmael. We're, child, we're children of the promise, like Isaac, who are born into God's gift. God has saved us, Paul says, not by our works, not by our obedience, not by our sinful accomplishments, but by Christ, our Savior. Paul says he did everything necessary and that we cannot add or subtract from him. Now, why do we read these words today? For this reason, Christians still struggle with the problem of believing God's promises. Like the Galatians did. Like Abraham did. We still think sometimes that we have to do something to earn our salvation. The really popular way this comes across in the United States, and you've heard this before, goes like this. If you want to be saved then you have to invite Jesus to live in your heart and accept Him as your personal Lord and Savior. I had to do that very thing before I was Lutheran to be considered a real Christian. That's the obvious way there is a more sneaky, less obvious way that this invades our heart. It's called pietism. And it sounds like this. If you want to be a real Christian, then you'll give more money to church. 
If you want to be a real Christian, then you'll teach Sunday school. If you want to be a real Christian, you'll do this or that. It can be said different ways and still mean the same thing. Maybe you say this to yourself even. I'm a better Christian than that person sitting across the room because I work harder at my job. I have a nicer wife. I sin less or in different ways. I'm more Christian because I listen to Christian rock, not classic rock. I'm more Christian because I serve on more boards. The most, in fact, of anyone in the congregation. I spend more time in the church building. I wipe off the tables in the fellowship hall after meals are over. I'm more Christian because I go to a church where they chant the liturgy. I'm more Christian because I've been Christian my whole life. Lutheran, in fact. My grandparents founded this congregation. In all of these things and more, behind it is this idea. You, as a Christian, must take God's promise into your hand and complete its work. That you must force God's hand. He does 99%, and it's up to you to listen to the right music, to help the right way, to act differently. And that by those things, you receive salvation. If this desire tries to weasel its way into your heart, dear Christian, repent. Repent. It's not 99% you and 1% Jesus. It's not 99% Jesus and 1% you. Christ does the whole thing for you. He is your Savior. He saves you, as Paul says, by grace, through faith. As he repeats often in Ephesians 2, you cannot add or subtract by your works to what Christ accomplishes. And that's what St. Paul is teaching the Galatians. Paul rejects the works idea categorically. He uses the example of Abraham and Sarah, who when they tried to take God's promise into their own hands, rather than trust and wait, became slaves to their actions, dealing with sinful family conflict as a result. But it's God who at his own good timing fulfilled the promise by sending Isaac 
by sending Christ. The same with the Galatians. They wanted to save themselves by circumcision. But God says that won't work. Paul points to Christ who was circumcised for us, who fulfilled the law that we could not. He is our Savior. And the same is true for you. Jesus is the promised Savior. His work is the good news of God. He took your sin upon himself and bled and suffered for it. He's the one who was promised to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, to David and Solomon, to Ezekiel and Nehemiah. He's the one that was promised for you. The offspring through which you are blessed. The one who has saved you. He saved you by fulfilling God's law completely in your place. His righteousness now counts in your account. He did everything God required, both actively fulfilling the law and passively suffering for where you fell short. He saved you, and he gave that salvation to you as a gift, as a promise, with no strings attached through the waters of baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through the preaching of the word into your ears. He saved you. And you belong to him. And only then, only by what he has accomplished, have you been made alive to finally do good things. Having been saved, You do what is right, not to earn points with God, but to serve him by serving the people around you. You do what is right because Christ purchased and won you from all sins, from death and the power of the devil, with his holy precious blood, innocent suffering and death, just as St. Peter writes in chapter 1. And then you being saved... Serve the people around you. You see, you're not a slave. You're not forced into these actions to save yourself, to buy your freedom. You are a child of the promise. You believe in Jesus. And so, as Paul says, We are not children of the slave, but of the free, of the promise of God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.
This has been With Intrepid Heart Sermons by Pastor Adam Moline. The words, With Intrepid Hearts, come from the conclusion to the Book of Concord where it is written, By God's grace, with intrepid hearts, we are willing to appear before the judgment seat of Christ with this confession, and give an account of it. We will not speak or write anything contrary to this confession, either publicly or privately. By the strength of God's grace, we intend to abide by it.